You're listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show set out to bring you news, interesting topics and interviews with people mostly from Europe, building bridges and breaking down language barriers to show the world how active and awesome the skeptical movement is in the region. This is episode 338. I'm your host, Andres Pinter, and joining me for the show are my co-hosts, Annika Harrison and Pontus Böckmann. Sziasztok! Hallo! Hey, son, hey, son, Andros! You're back. Oh, how are you guys? Yes, <laughs> yeah. I am. I am. How good of you to pop in. All recording. three of us. Thank Woo. You. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's 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 so good to be back. But how are you? How are you? How are, how are things? Things are good. I feel great. We have lovely weather. I know the weather is uh, uh, can be very unpredictable these days. And uh, but mm-hmm. we had today like 23, 24 degrees. Perfect. Oh, Sunny. Yeah. That is perfect. Yeah, it is perfect. Mm-hmm. So uh, has it, but, but it has gone up to above 30, right? Uh, uh, this not summer. For, a, for a while, but it maybe it's coming later this week. That's what I, they say I, anyway. Well, yeah. we haven't had, we haven't had that, he- the, those heat waves that uh, you guys have had. Mm, yeah. yeah, we we still have it. <laughs> yeah. And how bit, do you cope with that? Uh it's it's a bit annoying. I'm just over it. <laughs> I just Okay. I just want to have October or maybe September would be good enough because there's ESC <laughs> in about mm-hmm. a month. Ooh, so yeah. I'm very yes. excited Please. for that. Register now if you haven't. <laughs> exactly. You have about 4 weeks and it's done. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and I think in the German, German skeptical scene, we still have several topics we talk about. The biggest topic is probably still the death of Dr. Lisa Maria Kellermeyer that I talked yeah. about last week. Yes. Terrible thing. Yeah, and I, oh my I God. just wanted to tell you a bit more about the consequences. For those who didn't listen to last week's episode. Like myself. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I still haven't had the time, sorry. <laughs> Andrash, but I I'm will, very I will catch up. No, but she received death threats for more than seven months for mm. vaccinating against COVID-19. She eventually closed her practice because she couldn't afford the practice and a bodyguard at the same time. The police didn't really offer protection and a friend of her summed it up pretty well and I quote... In the end, she begged for help from politicians, from the police, from her medical association. It never came. The police and the medical association would mock her. They said Dr. Kellermeyer just wants to seek the limelight. Politicians ignored her. Now she is dead. End quote. And that is really a good summary for that. She closed her practice for good. And in the end of July, she had invested about 100,000 euro in security measures at that point. And she was also very sad about that because she loved her profession. She loved being a doctor. What I found really heavy is that on the Austrian radio, the police even stated she was only seeking the attention to further her career. But not after her death. Was it? Um, I couldn't find out if it was after her or before her death, but they wow. repeated that publicly. And an official complaint of neglect now has been charged. Also because they claimed they couldn't find out who was making the death threats. But a German hacker only needed, I think, two hours to find that out. So they were like, yeah... You just didn't try. You didn't want to try. You just uh, mocked her, you know. And the consequences that I mentioned before were that several popular German-speaking Twitter users and other social media activists have deactivated their accounts. For example, the lawyer Chan Yo Chun or also Natalie Gramsnobman, who we all know. Mm. Wow. Yeah. 
she will still be active through her podcast, but she was deeply, like personally impacted by Kellermeyer's death. And yeah, she, she said you can really see how little protection physicians and activists on social media really get from authorities. Basically none. Yeah. This is, it, Isn't that it, very consistent with what we heard from Claire, Claire Klingenberg? Yeah, exactly. It, 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 I also had to think of Claire in that regard. And it's just like, how yes. Do you, how, how are you supposed to decide whether a death threat or any kind of threat is real or not? That's the job of the authorities. That's the job of the police to yeah. find that out, to go and, and investigate and find out if yeah. it's real. Just dismissing this offhand and saying that oh, oh don't worry about that that's not a serious threat what if it is yeah how can you be sure even if the person never has any intent of following through it's still a threat it still frightens you yeah the threat in itself is a crime yeah exactly exactly it's an offense so i just hope everyone stays safe in that regard and i think we all just have to remind yeah. ourselves that Activism is great, but keeping ourselves mentally healthy is more important. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And with that, um, on that happy note. <laughs> on that happy note. On that happy note, I should probably give up being a traveling tour guide because <laughs> I am. I sometimes feel like I'm losing my sanity. <laughs> really, it's crazy times, and uh, it's unbelievable that even in countries where you would expect things to go smoothly and normally, because you've been doing this so long, it turns out that everywhere people mm -hmm. have lost their sense of professionalism i don't know it's amazing even in canada i experienced that it was unbelievable and uh, now i'm having heading to the uk so i'm really looking forward to seeing what happens there but uh, yeah mm. i'm still open for new jobs people out there. Um, <laughs> just send your job interview <laughs> notifications to andres at the esp.eu <laughs> yeah the problem is it has to pay as much as being a podcaster right no it has to pay <laughs> much more than that it has to be a much little more bit than more <laughs> <laughs> yeah i don't intend to get rich i just need to make enough money to get by yeah ah. there is a canadian singer goes by the name gord bamford and uh, he has a song that goes, this crazy day job, it's ruining my nightlife. That's the base, <laughs> baseline <laughs> of the things. It's, it's pretty good country music, by the way, so I do recommend listening to that. But I think we have a show to do. That's what our listeners expect us to do. So that's what we're going to do. As usual, we are going to start with Twitch, also known as This Week in Skeptical History. And this week, I'd like to celebrate the birthday of someone who's probably well known for everyone who has ever studied chemistry and also who's closely related or just following the workings of uh, Humanist UK. And that person is Peter William Atkins, who was born on the 10th of August 1920. So he's turning 82 tomorrow as of the day of this recording. So, what am I talking about? Does that name ring a bell to, to two of you? No, it doesn't. No. Actually, I remember my, the first time I heard his name was when I started studying physical chemistry as one of the modules in my university course for biology and environmental science. And that is considered physical chemistry, his, his physical chemistry textbook, the first edition of which was published in 1978. And the 11th edition was published just a couple of years ago. 
So he, they kept updating it as science progressed. That's considered, at least here in Hungary, like the Bible of physical chemistry. It's like that important a textbook. And interestingly, his career went down a very interesting road because he left school, grammar school, at 15 years of age and took a job at Monsanto. <laughs> right at the devil. Right at <laughs> the right. devil. And he became a lab assistant at a very young age. And this way, he became familiar with lab equipment and, and everything that goes on in chemistry from a practical point of view, which is very, very important in his later works. Because later he became a theoretical chemist at the University of Leicester, where he studied himself without going to school for his A-levels to enter this, enter the university, which is absolutely amazing. Hmm. And then he obtained a BSc in chemistry and then a PhD, and uh, then went on to do postdoctoral positions in certain universities outside of the UK, but then uh, went back to Lincoln College in Oxford, where he was a professor until his retirement at 2007. He wrote several textbooks, like uh, not only that I just mentioned, physical chemistry, but uh, the inorganic chemistry textbook is well known of his as well. And I think a 10, 11 textbooks he has written but he has written a lot of science popularization kind of books as well so he's very well known for that too including those that try to explain why science is opposing everything that religion teaches us about how the world came about and that leads to the fact that um, he is a very well-known atheist as well. He's a distinguished supporter and a patron of the Humanist UK, which is, I think it was formerly known as the British Humanist Association. He's so ardent of an atheist that uh, some people compare it to Richard Dawkins and some people do claim that he is more hardline than Richard Dawkins, which I don't think anyone can be uh, <laughs> when it comes to atheism. Still, it's it's interesting. He has engaged in uh, several debates about science versus religion and how theists are wrong, according to him. Yes, so he's a very distinguished scientist and well-known a household name for everyone who has ever studied chemistry at university level. I remember feeling the awe towards chemistry after having looked at the book. But unfortunately, I didn't have a long enough module to go deeply into what that textbook offers. So I should have studied chemistry, majoring in chemistry, but I didn't. So it was just a, like a sideline thing. But it gave me a very deep appreciation to how the scientific method tries to untangle everything, the, the secrets of the world and how the world works. And putting all that into a mathematical form, it's absolutely amazing. So I still haven't given up on understanding everything that's written on that freaking book. <laughs> but uh, that moment is still a long way out. So uh, in the meantime, I would like to wish a very happy birthday to Professor Peter William Atkins, who's also, by the way, a uh, fellow of the Royal Society of Chemistry, obviously. Mm. Yeah, so I haven't found any sources where he would identify himself as a skeptic, but definitely identifies himself as a humanist and an atheist. All right, 
And with that, I think the most fitting thing to move on to is uh, the wrongdoings of the Pope. <laughs> so, Pontus, have you got something to poke him for this week? Yes, so from an atheist to someone who is not. So I will spend <laughs> oh, yeah, I will spend some time this week to revisit Frankie's apology to the Canadian peoples that we talked about last Ooh. week or I talked about last week because we got an email from listener Krister. Thank you very much. We always appreciate getting feedback. So Krista sent us a link to an article written in the Conversation, the website the Conversation. And before I say the title of the article, I should clarify that the policy of forcing children to go to the schools in question that we talked about, which is the whole thing is about, that policy is known as the 60s scoop policy, in the meaning that the children were scooped up and sent to, to schools against the, the family's will. So the header of the article is, I survived the 60s scoop. Here's why the Pope's apology isn't an apology at all, end quote. So obviously this is written by someone who's personally involved, personally victimized of the so-called scoop. And um, they describe the trauma of not just going to one of these schools, but also spending years and decades trying to locate their siblings and family members after the fact. So terrible stuff indeed. You were sent mm -hmm. there as a young, very young child. Your siblings were sent to maybe other schools. And after the fact, you didn't know where you belonged. Um, very terrible. So in view of this article, Christer, the listener who sent this link, suggests that perhaps Frankie, and this is how Christer puts it, quote, deserves somewhat harsher criticism, end quote, than <laughs> the Pope got from me last week. And I think it is a valid question. So obviously, my perspective on this whole business is very different from a person who's actually a victim of it. And this very terrible thing that actually Frankie himself agreed to call a genocide. So it's very well for me to sit in a, on another continent even and perhaps fall for the slick charm of a, a pope who has a full staff of PR guys behind him. And they are helping him, of, obviously, to do the best of a very bad situation. So let's dig into the apology as it was to see what he actually said. And this was from a... Uh, I'm going to quote from a speech that Franke gave in Quebec on the 27th of July. Quote, In that deplorable system, meaning, of course, the scoop itself, in that deplorable system, promoted by the governmental authorities of the time, which separated many children from their families, different local Catholic institutions had a part. For this reason, I express my deep shame and sorrow... And together with the bishops of this country, I renew my request for forgiveness for the wrong done by so many Christians to the indigenous peoples. End quote. So that's basically the core of the apology. So I want to break that down a little. So he actually blames the government a bit because he's saying they were the one promoting, quote, that deplorable system, end quote. He then acknowledges that Local Catholic institutions, quote-unquote, took part in this. This, again, is distancing himself from, and, <laughs> and also the Vatican, from what actually happened. It was the local Catholic institutions. So it's not taking full responsibility, you could argue. 
And any good leadership includes taking on whatever your organization has done. You do not blame the people below you for things that have gone wrong. You are ultimately responsible. So, so far, I agree, not a stellar performance for Frankie. Then I think he is improving further down the quote. He is saying, I express my deep shame and sorrow. So that makes it personal for him. Also, he says, quote, I renew my request for forgiveness, end quote. Again, making it personal. But then he goes on to remind us that the atrocities were not made by him, but, quote, so many Christians, end quote. (laughs) So it's going back and forth. In a way, though, I would say that so many Christians implies that they were acting on behalf of the Catholic Church. That you could you could debate that. So right, when I look at this, I said my perspective is very different from someone who's actually a victim of this. And what maybe made me a little bit soft on Frankie last week is the expectations I had. I did not expect him to say, quote, the Catholic Church is guilty of this genocide, end quote, because that would be setting an impossible standard. When it comes to taking the blame, he has to make this about he can apologize, but the Catholic Church cannot be made responsible too much because that would open up the whole issue of financial litigation. So I never expected him to do so. You could say that he should have done that, but I don't think you could ever expect that to happen. Hmm. No. Now, I mean, come on. You, you, you don't open up your... As a leader for an organization, you don't open up for this organization to be the subject of lots of uh, financial litigation. You have to expect some sort of political, what should I call it, being a little bit uh, smart about it from from that point of view. But I I think at at this point, and especially most of the Canadian people and the rest of the world as well, who who knows about this and follows this, only wants a gesture, like a, a, a political gesture and a clear statement and owning up for what the church has done. And he's not right, especially when he speaks about something like this in Quebec. Because in Quebec, education was under the control of the Catholic Church up until the 60s. Yeah. So the government only took over the control of education in the 60s during what's called and what's being referred to as the silent revolution in Quebec. Mm. Now, the rest of, Can- rest of Canada is somewhat different from that perspective, but Quebec is specifically not. And he gave that speech in Quebec. He did. So that's a ridiculous thing to do. Yeah. So he deserves some criticism. But there's another minor detail in the perspective, and and that is in the timing. The article in the conversation was written and published. Well, written when I don't know when it was written, but it was published on the 26th. But the apology Mm -hmm. that I just quoted was in a speech from the 27th, which means that person could not have heard that version of the apology until after the the article was written, which you have to take into consideration. I don't know how different it would be. Well, there is a press corps traveling with him on his plane when he's traveling. It's like like with the the, the American president (laughs) as the same thing. It's exactly, it's very similar. So there's a whole press corps traveling with him. So it might have been a leak. By the way, they pay very expensively to be part of that press corps. He's not taking them along 
for nothing. Yeah, yeah. They have to pay for it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But I should say also that this article in the conversation also pointed to a few things that I have not mentioned or not even known a little into that detail. So I should go through those as well. So the first is that the apology that was now given was actually requested in 2015 for the first time, officially requested. We want you to apologize. And the the request was that he would get there and apologize within one year from that statement. <laughs> so that's a long time ago. I mean, there's been pandemics and stuff, but in 2016, he could have gone there. Mm-hmm. So this apology is six years overdue. The second thing is that people have for many years requested that the Catholic Church make all records available. All records should be public so that independent researchers could start the huge task to try to track down both perpetrators and victims and, and put all of it together. So remember that the article describes how family members were separated and I'm assuming still, in some cases, haven't located one another. They don't know where their relatives are. Siblings, children and other relatives. And and that Mm -hmm. is the least you could expect. I mean, please publish that so that we can try to find our families. The third thing is, we mentioned last week that the church promised 30 million US dollars. Well, I mentioned 25 million Canadian dollars, but this is uh, <laughs> this article <laughs> talks about US dollars, so it doesn't matter. But 30 million US dollars were promised by the, the Catholic Church, and after many years, they have come up with about 10% of that. And that's appalling. What I didn't know that I learned from this article was that in the same time period, the church has raised $128 million, so that's four times as much, to renovate St. Michael's Cathedral Basilica in Toronto. So now that makes me really angry. How can that be a priority? You have promised to come up with compensation of $30 million, and instead of that, you put $130 million almost into just renovating your, your church. Then you're putting your own buildings. Those are more important than people's lives, really. And that is appalling. So, yes. so in conclusion of all this, uh, I, again, thank you, Krista, for sending that uh, link to me. I do believe I did let Frankie off too easily last week. He should make amends and he can still do that. And he should start by publishing the documentation and coughing up the money immediately. <laughs> and I will make sure to sharpen my stick for future pokings. <laughs> I promise. <laughs> 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 so that's that's about that. But then uh, there is one other thing that I haven't had really had time to dig into, but I want to mention it because it's actually quite big. The Vatican, a totally different subject, but the Vatican in, in a bombshell disclosure has published its finances. You can say that happens every year, and it does. But this year, they have decided to include almost all entities that they have, almost 100 entities, different organizations, things, blah, 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 all belonging to the Vatican in some way or other. It's still not all of them. I think they've published the finances for 98 entities this year, and it usually has been around 60. But what have we learned from that? Well... The Vatican's annual income and expenditures have earlier been significantly underreported. 
they're usually <laughs> you say uh, so <laughs> well they usually end up around 350 million dollars and uh, it turns out it's closer to a billion dollars so that's three times as high and the total assets are now known to be four billion dollars instead of previously two billion dollars I'm not sure they have put all the cards on the table, but there it's exactly yeah. And you can, of course, <laughs> you can I'm be. Thinking. You can say that's a good thing. They're now being more transparent, but still. So the level of transparency is increasing, apparently. But who knows where is the hundred percent that yeah. we we would really like to see? <laughs> yeah, right. The, the, the so. only. The only two entities that I know of, or was written in the article that I read, that are excluded so far is. One is the Vatican Bank. It's called something else. I can't remember, but we call it the Vatican Bank. And that's not too big a problem because the Vatican Bank publishes its finances separately. So we know those. I don't know the numbers in my head, but it is not a secret. And the other is the actual governing, the, the, the management of the, the Vatican state, the, the, the real estate with the gardens and the buildings and the stuff on the actual Vatican. That's actually not included in, the, in this um, thing, but uh, it remains to be seen what, what, what that is. But it, at least it's a step forward. You, you have to give them that. It's more than, much more than before. So now we know that they have more money. We suspect it as much. Yeah. And the the thing is, we talk sometimes about the poor, quote-unquote, uh, financial situation of the Vatican. And when we talk about that, what we mean is that they have a deficit every year. And it was expected by experts to be around $33 million of a loss last year. Well, it turned out it's only $3.3 million. So it's not as bad as has been suggested. But... They have reopened them, the, the Vatican museums. <laughs> that, that, well, not last year. This is for 2021. So maybe not ah, okay, so much. Okay. All right. Okay. Okay. But there's another dimension of this. And that is that they have reached closer to net zero result by selling off about 20 to 25 million dollars worth of assets. And mm. it appears that they are doing this on a, on a yearly basis now to keep things going and that is well if you if you own if you have assets of about four billion dollars as i said before maybe 25 million isn't that much but it shows that business isn't going too well at the moment and hasn't been for for quite some time they also have a problem with a big pension debt to their employees which is not uncommon among uh, big companies but it is well, that does, it's small comfort that others have the same problem. It's a big bomb of pension debt that they owe to their staff. And uh, one of these days, that was going to hit them. Yeah. I, I have but one to be honest, yeah? to be honest, uh, sorry, just to be honest, if your product is basically fake, <laughs> then you shouldn't have this amount of income in the first place. So, and I, and I just, I was too curious. So I just looked up what the, the total assets of the Istituto per le Opere di Religione are. That is the Vatican Bank's official mm -hmm. name. Yeah. And according to their 2019 report, it's 2.93 billion euros. Right. So 
that's only the Vatican Bank. <laughs> right, but it's probably not net assets. I haven't looked at those numbers, but it's pro- a bank usually have almost as much debt as they have assets, so it sort of balances. I, I well, don't know. Yeah, yeah, but we don't. We're not sure about that with the Vatican Bank, though. <laughs> Let's put it this way: religion is big business, however <laughs> you look at it. It is indeed. I have one more. I, I know this is dragging out a bit. It's a big pope this week, but. Uh, one more thing about the financials, and I thought, because we sometimes uh, mention Padre Pio on this show. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, he's not a saint, but he was... He is a saint. He is a saint, okay. He is so a saint, yes. He's a pretty modern saint then, and very mm-hmm. popular in, in Italy, as you usually tell us, uh, Andros. Uh, he, Padre Pio, that is, founded a hospital uh, at some point. It's called uh, the Casa Solievo della Sofferenza. Or something like that. The house of, mm-hmm. the, the, sorry, the home of the relief of suffering. And exactly. This is a big uh, thing, and it's become one of the largest and most modern hospitals in the Italian Mezzogiorno, which <laughs> I have just learned is the south half of Italy. Is that right? Mm-hmm. This hospital is now included in the Vatican finances. And it was reported already last year that it was on the brink of bankruptcy. And now, looking at this year's report, you can confirm that it is really bleeding money. Hopefully, they're not bleeding their patients. <laughs> Hopefully, they are, have evolved from that. But it's bleeding money, and it's a big, big hole in the financial statement. Yay. <laughs> so, um, enough of uh, this, I think. I've been talking too much, too long. <laughs> But it was a lot of news this week. And even then, there were future travels and trips for, for the Pope that's been announced. And I will save that for next week because we, we need to move on, I think. So this week's uh, segment should have been called Pope Properly Poked by Pontus. Yes. Uh, <laughs> could be. Could be. It's not, it's not too late to change that. We'll make, put that in the show notes. <laughs> All right. Anyhow, thank you very much for that, Pontus. <laughs> Thanks. And with that, we are moving on to looking around in Europe and see what's new. There's actually really cool news, and that is that there's a book coming out by Harriet Hall and Kevin Howell. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a children's book. And it promotes critical thinking. The text is by Harriet Hall and the illustrations are by a fan of hers and of the story from the UK. Oh, there's the European connection. That's the European connection right there. (laughs) (laughs) The book itself is called There's No Such Thing as the Tooth Fairy. Mm. And it's from, uh, it goes back to an article written in 2006 by Harriet Hall called Teaching Pigs to Sing that contained a fable about the tooth fairy. And mm-hmm. Kevin Howell loved that story or that fable so much that he actually illustrated it and turned it into a children's book. <laughs> and a children's book is not only educational, but also funny, colorful, and it teaches evidence and critical thinking. It can now be ordered. <laughs> and it's about Henry, who is looking forward to getting money from the Tooth Fairy, and his older sister Harriet, who tells him that there is no Tooth Fairy, and who also teaches him 
to ask himself if there can be a tooth fairy by using critical questions and other experiments. The book is intended for kids aged six or um, eight years old, but of course you can also start a bit younger. And there are also Easter eggs for adults, so funny labels on a box, for example, or uh, decorations in the back of, of a room. I don't want to spoil it, so <laughs> I will just leave it. I think the spoiler it. is already in the title of the book, right? <laughs> yeah. There is no tooth fairy. Sorry, guys. <laughs> yeah, and speaking of uh, Easter eggs, uh, what about the Easter bunny? Maybe, um. maybe. <laughs> but uh, I mean, like, I don't mind a bit of magic in, in childhood, but of course, I love skeptical thinking and critical thinking. So mm -hmm. I will definitely buy this book for Luna once she is old enough for that. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, Harriet Hall is a famous skeptic and mm -hmm. uh, very much, uh, well, an idol in a way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think we met her in person at one of the QEDs. Uh, a couple of years ago, I don't remember that. Wasn't wasn't that true? Okay, I could be wrong. I could be wrong. Yeah, but uh, our listeners could help us out. If you also remember Harriet Hall attending one of the QEDs a couple of years ago, then let us know. If I'm wrong, then please let me know because uh, I want to be corrected. Uh, I yeah, it, it could be me as well. My memory is not what it should be. Today, as we record this episode, the news broke that Olivia Newton-John has passed away. So, very sad, oh, no. of course. And many of us, myself included, grew up uh, watching the film Grease more times than I care to remember. We've seen it many, many times. So, it's very sad, even though, mm -hmm. as a sidetrack, the film itself has not aged well, I must say. I have, um, <laughs> since a long time back, come to realize that I didn't realize when I was very young, that um, the story is rather horribly misogynistic. Here we have this perfectly lovable and wonderful young woman, played by Olivia, of course, uh, who is treated like shit by John Travolta until she is forced to change all of her personality just to get him back. So the, the message of the film is that women must do anything to please their abusive men. Uh, horrible, in a way. I don't know how it became so big, but uh, the music was fine. Olivia Newton-John gave a great performance in the film. It was a big hit. So so it's sad to hear of a passing at the age of only 73. At this time, the reason of her death hasn't been announced. At least I haven't seen that. But uh, it is known that she had repeated and probably related to each other several cases of cancer. And this is where the skeptical angle comes in. I was not aware of this, but she was first diagnosed with breast cancer over 30 years ago. Whether it was a result of that or not, she became an outspoken advocate of scam. What you know, you know what Ed Sodernst yes. put into that acronym. It's so-called alternative medicine. So she was a proponent of alternative medicine. Her cancer came back twice. And in uh, 2017, she was diagnosed to have bone metastasis. In the meanwhile, she married a guy called John Easterling, who is the boss of the Amazon Herb Company, or Herb Company, I guess, depending on what continent you subscribe <laughs> to. Uh, but that company is a natural remedy company. It's, that hasn't anything to do with Amazon, uh, the, the big Amazon company. 
And Olivia Newton-John is quoted as saying, quote, Plants and herbs that my husband has introduced me to help strengthen my body, end quote. That doesn't sound too good. You shouldn't try to strengthen your body, quote-unquote, with herbs or herbs. You should use real medicine. In 2008, she founded the Olivia Newton-John Cancer Wellness and Research Center. It's a mouthful in Melbourne, in Australia, in partnership with uh, Austin Health. This wellness and research center is far from a full-on alternative medicine center, but they do offer acupuncture and for palliative care, they also offer other alternative treatments. And I would say also, this is a you have to be a little bit moderate here. Olivia Newton-John never seems to have rejected real medicine, but it is very plausible that she did use alternative and unproven treatments, the ones that she celebrated and promoted. And we can never say, of course, what would have happened if she hadn't or if she had fully relied on real medicine, if we will. But clinging to unproven therapies is never a good idea. Uh, it's just a wishful thinking. If we know something works, we should use that. And uh, the definition of alternative medicine is that we don't know if it works. And I don't really want to blame the victim here. Uh, she was probably well-intentioned. Uh, and we don't even know exactly what happened. But please, people, do stay away from alternative scam. Best case, it does nothing. Worst case, it delays getting real medicine or even in, it may even interfere with real uh, medicine if you take it. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we have to refrain from blaming the victim, but uh, such examples should be put into display in a way so that these can be used as examples to avoid. So like, yeah. like things to avoid in the future. It's not like we think that she deserved it because she didn't do enough. Absolutely not. Uh, no. So it's definitely not like that. But it's a sad thing. It's it's a sad situation when, when you see that, uh, who knows how much longer she could have lived probably a normal life yeah. had she gone not down that rabbit hole. And, and to be honest, we don't even know that because... Exactly. She, it may not have... It may not be why she died or she we can't say how long she would have lived yeah. if she but yes. it, but it's not right to promote alternative medicine because as tim minchin says the definition of alternative medicine is that it has either been proved not to work or we don't know if it works did i get it wrong i think you said it you're right <laughs> never mind yeah yeah no, but you know what I mean. It's either not proven to work or proven not to work. So that's, that's I think, exactly, it's more exactly. like what he said. So, But in, in yeah, any case, yeah. we've seen examples of this before, famous examples. Steve Jobs is comes to mind. Exactly. Who tried to treat his cancer with eating apples. Because as you can tell from the name yeah, of the else? company he founded, <laughs> he liked apples. Mm, yeah, didn't work for him. No miracle cue there. Um yeah, it's important. And if you use it as a like a complementary thing, like uh yeah, some people go on like like spiritual journeys mm -hmm. and things like that. G go for it, do it, but as a plus above what the doctors tell you to do because they know best. Well, they know better than you. We have exactly, to assume that exactly. the, yeah. People who have studied this for decades know better than Exactly what you can find on Google. Yeah, 
exactly. That's a safe exactly. assumption. And yeah, it can come across a couple of doctors who are not necessarily on top of things and they're not following the latest in research, but there's always a bit of a lag behind the medical science and medical practice. Yeah. So that's just normal. Things flow down into that level with a bit of delay. All right. Yeah. Sad news. Sad news. It is. Yeah, and we we talked about alternative medicine that doesn't work. I want to talk, talk about something else that doesn't work, and that is school-based mindfulness training. <laughs> school-based mindfulness training? Hmm. Yes. Scientists wanted to find out if mindfulness training with students in school would have an effect, and they thought it would... Um, on grades, you mean? On the mental health of a student. On the mental health. Yes, of exactly. All. So it's not no, it's not co performance like no, it's uh, not academic performance, performance. It's mental it's, health. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Because a lot of students are grappling with anxiety, depression, burnout at times. It's like if you go through through the rows of kids and teenagers, like yes, even kids, um, their mental it's health stressful. is yeah. sometimes not great. Yeah, and I wanted to find out if, if this mindfulness training would help. And they analyzed 84 mm-hmm. schools with 8,376 participants <laughs> in total. And they wow. found That's no evidence that mindfulness training was superior to teaching as usual. Mm-hmm. And of course, this, this wouldn't be the podcast if I wouldn't give you my opinion in that regard. Because mm-hmm. for me, that's not surprising. Because like students don't need <laughs> mindfulness for improvement of mental health. They need less pressure, fun while learning, critical thinking, more autonomy, more choice, an actual job afterwards, a world that is not burning. Right. You know, <laughs> just like... But, but I, th- I think the idea is not... Yeah, a future to look forward to. <laughs> <laughs> but I think the idea is not totally implausible mindfulness could help you maybe relax and maybe give you some well i don't know enough about mindfulness really (laughs) but but you know if you can think about meditation Mm -hmm. calming down getting rid of some stress could it could help yeah i I think i just feel like it's too little too late i'm like i I know exactly what you mean i know it's it's a good idea Mm-hmm. But I think, like, for me, it just feels like you're spraying perfume on a freshly fertilized field and you're expecting it to smell better then, you know? <laughs> okay, okay, good. Interesting. <laughs> what I'd, I really like is that approach that they didn't just base their assessment of mindfulness training at a school environment on, like, reports of a, f- a few good cases. Like, oh, yeah, 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 we, these children have really improved in terms of uh, of mental health. They applied a scientific approach. Yes. That's awesome. That's really cool. Yes. And, and very rare when it comes to things like this, like ideas like this. It's very rarely, rarely applied, mm-hmm. uh, the, the scientific rigor. Mm-hmm. Good to see that. There's a lot of other things that uh, people do research into, and there are institutes out there like the Network Contagion Research Institute that's out of the United States, but the topic itself has uh, relevance to Europe and the whole world, actually. Uh, This institute, well, as the name suggests, it does research into how the spreading of web-based information is uh, happening and what consequences it it can have. So we, we often mention concepts like cyber threat, 
or other kinds of uh, issues that uh, modern societies have. So this institution, along with uh, a couple of others, like the Rutgers Miller Center for Community Protection and Resilience, they have found out a very interesting thing, that uh, the same Twitter accounts that have promoted QAnon and anti-vaccine conspiracy theories in the last couple of years, they are now switching the focus and promote disinformation regarding the food crisis that is upon the world at the moment as a result of Russia's aggression against Ukraine. They are spreading the idea that it's not Russia who's to blame for the ongoing uh, food crisis in the world, and especially in uh, slightly underdeveloped countries uh, like several of them in Africa, as opposed to Russia being the one responsible, they blame the Western countries and every other country who have implemented the sanctions against Russia. So it's an interesting thing. And why it becomes even more interesting is because it's in complete alignment with the Russian communication and the Russian government's ideas that are being spread. In fact, the Russian government is so adamant in trying to convey that message that the foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, whom we have heard a lot in the the last couple of months, that is the foreign minister of Russia, has traveled, made a tour in Africa to rally support to their idea, to rally support against Western nations who have implemented the sanctions against Russia. So blaming all of them for the current situation. Imagine that, going into a crowd of people who are hungry and suffering from a shortage of food and a shortage of grains, especially wheat, that both Russia and Ukraine are the largest support of in the world, and telling them that the ones who are to blame for this situation are the Western countries. Not me, I did the right thing by invading Ukraine, it's not us, it's the Western countries who are punishing us for doing the wrong thing. I don't know. It's so cynical. It's so disgusting. And now it seems that the support is being rallied all over the world, mostly on Twitter and Telegram as well, as in personally attended tours in Africa by Sergei Lavrov. Yeah, but it, it, it seems to me almost obvious, even though that this is not proof, that uh, Russia was behind those Twitter accounts already before, and they supported QAnon because they wanted to have turmoil in the US, and now they're yes. promoting Russian things. So it's been Russian bots all the time. Or I don't know if it's bots or if it's handled by humans, no. but... Now, that's the thing, that the Network Contagion Research Institute made a distinction. They found that not only those bots that are obviously controlled by Russia at work here, but also real accounts that have been exposed to and as a result, have been promoting these ideas. Obviously, there has to be like a live audience as well. I mean, leaving people behind those Twitter accounts and Telegram accounts that are just very prone to these pieces of disinformation and uh, they are eager to spread them because it resonates with them. Yeah, 
And in the situation when the UN has said that there could be 49 to 50 million people pushed into famine or famine-like conditions in the near future or at present, that is serious stuff. So it's not it's not a joke. It, it has never been, but uh, now it's, it's even less so. Mm. A lot of work to do. Indeed. Yeah. But with that, I think we are moving on from the news to finding out who's been really wrong lately. Yes, and um, we talked about food shortages before. There might also be energy shortages in winter in Europe. In Germany, everyone is fear-mongering oh, again yeah. because of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And now an emergency government decree in Hungary, Andras, <laughs> allows clear-cutting uh. of native tree species like oak and beech in protected forests, no less, to battle these shortages. And they also suggested schools to check if they can switch from gas to wood. It's understandable mm-hmm. they're afraid of shortages, but it's absolutely the wrong way. It will make Hungary and the world more vulnerable to the effects of climate change, especially because they even want to open logging in national parks. So, yeah, it's it's definitely a wrong, wrong decision. Very short-sighted as well. Absolutely short-sighted. After a while, they have set fire to all the native forests, and then what would they do? Exactly. They're cutting down trees that help with against against climate change That's, and then burning yeah. them. Yeah. So like it's just doing bad things and making it worse, you know. <laughs> yeah, and uh, the, the, the one of the reasons why that happened is because we are among the most vulnerable countries when it comes to gas supplies. Mm-hmm. We are massively dependent on Russian gas. Mm-hmm. However, the rhetoric has been for so long that we get our gas from Russia much cheaper because of the good relationship between our government and the Russian government. (laughs) But now they are trying to convince people not to use gas by they basically calculated an average level of consumption of gas. And if you go above that, the price of the gas for you as a citizen of Hungary will come sevenfold. Wow. Seven times the price that you pay for the normal level of consumption. And basically, no household can live on the amount that has been named as the average amount during wintertime. So it's going to be absolutely crazy. So people have started buying wood. Yeah, to, to not freeze in winter, of course. Exactly. And in so large large quantities that at some places, the only promise that you can get for wood to burn is that sometime around the middle of October, you will probably get your order. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so this is how bad the situation is. Mm-hmm. And now their answer is this. And that is absolutely outrageous. Yeah. And everyone in their right mind is outraged. Hard situation, but absolutely wrong answer. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So for, for allowing clear cutting of native forests in Hungary to tackle the gas supply issues and for putting economic interests above the preservation of species, including us, as humans, I mean, <laughs> Orban's government receives this week's prize for being really wrong. Yeah, good. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I feel so ashamed of being Hungarian at the moment. No, I mean, sharing the same country with this guy Mm -hmm. and and, uh, the company. Well, And I'm pretty sure that there are a lot of their friends 
who have been put in position to do the cuttings and selling yes. of the wood. I'm pretty sure of it. So it has to be, there has to be something like this behind this in the background mm-hmm. as well. So, yeah. All right. Thank you very much for that, Anika. Thank you. And that brings us to the end of the show, which means uh, we need a quote. Yes. It's another short and sweet quote by Claude Bernard, <laughs> um, French physician and pharmacologist. He lived from 1813 mm-hmm. to 1878. And I chose an altruistic, hopeful <laughs> quote because I just thought it would give a nice frame to this episode. And the quote is, art is I, science is we. Mm. <laughs> yeah, science is definitely a joint venture. You don't do science on your own. Exactly. It's, it's the good Not old anymore. standing yeah. on the shoulders of giants. <laughs> yeah. No, even, even, yeah, yeah. even before you didn't do it on your own. Like you said, Annika, you built on what yeah. had come before you. Yeah. Yeah, but but it has changed still. So now it's more like uh, groups of people. It's teams. Yes. It's 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 right. more like a teamwork. Mm. Even back then, it was like in the eighteen hundreds. Still, it was like uh, individuals doing a lot of work, but building on others' works. But uh, now it's teamwork, and I like that about science. Me too. I fucking love science. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And with that, I'd like to thank both of you, Annika and Pontus, for joining me today. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Or rather, allowing me to join. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if you behave, you can come back next week. I'll try my best. I'll be on the road, but I, I'll try my best. And uh, uh, many thanks to our listeners as well for tuning in. Please keep doing so. And until next week, goodbye. Tschüss. Hello. Bis lat. This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time, but until then, please send your feedback, comments or death threats to info at the ESP.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes, as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Schraub and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at www.theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast underscore eu and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can believe Do you guys know how much of a pressure that is that I have to come up with something new every single time? Well, because you expect that from me. You don't have to, Andros. You can do the same every week, like the rest of us do. It's homemade pressure, you know? (laughs) Yeah, it's self applied pressure. Exactly. (laughs) Bone mustaches. What do you call it? Mustaches? Mustaches? Metastasis. 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 Yeah. Metastasis. I'll cut that back in. 
Hello, little girl. <laughs> yeah, hey. she sadly can't hear you, but she's still eating and I can hear it. It's pretty no, we, cute. We can hear that. Luna sagt mal Hallo. Hallo. Mama. Hallo. 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 Bla, bla, bla. Bla, bla.